Again, it's good to have you here at Freedom. Happy to have you be a part of worship with us. And uh, it's a joy to welcome in those of you who are now uh, joining us either live online through the website or maybe you're catching this later in the week in an archived version. Either way, glad to have you be a part of things. Uh, if the second through sixth graders who are in the room are expecting to depart right now, just remember today's the last Sunday of the month. So we'll all be in together for the whole hour. Uh, if you have not been with us uh, the last several weeks, or maybe today's your first time with us, I'll tell you, we've been uh, in a series throughout the summer uh, marching through characters in the Old Testament that we've identified as unexpected heroes. These are, are men and women who were greatly used by God that when you really get a good look at their lives, uh, you, you're sort of tempted to shake your head and go, why in the world did God pick him or her? And it's really been an encouraging study because it's a great reminder that God uses ordinary people like us to accomplish extraordinary things. And I have looked forward to today because today we're going to be talking about and looking at my absolute favorite character. Really, not just in the Old Testament, but if we, if we don't include Jesus in the mix, he is my favorite character in all of the Bible. You can't trump Jesus. But next to Jesus, my very favorite character, and that is David. Now, the problem with the David story is it's about this long and I've got about this much time. So uh, we're going to just dive right in and I'm going I'm to begin by just sharing with, with you the abbreviated version of David's story and then we're going to step back and consider some significant things in his life that I really do think will speak to us in many of our situations. And so I'll just remind you where David fits into the bigger picture of God's story. Uh, several of the last few weeks, we have been talking about characters who lived during the time of the judges, when the Israelites had come in and they had taken the land that God had been promising for centuries to Abraham's descendants. A period of about 300 years followed where there really wasn't a unified nation of Israel. There were 12 tribes that were just really loosely associated and there was no one ruler over the land. And so during these different periods of, of history in those 300 years, God would raise up charismatic leaders who were judges who would, would lead a portion of the people. But there was really no unified Israel. And so a time came when the people said, God, we want to be like our neighbors. We want to have a king. We want to be one people who we feel like would, would come together as one because we have a great king to follow. God wasn't real thrilled with that request because God wanted the people to follow him as their Lord and King. Uh, so God gave them what they asked for. And how many of you know you better be careful what you ask God for because you might just get it? Well, this was one of those times. They wanted a king and they wanted a certain kind of guy as their king. And so God said, I'm going to give you exactly what you're asking for. His name is Saul. Saul was a man who looked like he was born to be king. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in the land. He was just the man, good looking, big man. And this was a day in which, you know, being king, you really needed to be a man who could lead by force as much as by brains. And so the fact that he was just a big, good looking guy made him look like he was the one. And so he ruled in Israel as its first king for a span of 40 years. Well, David was born during the reign of Saul. He wasn't related to Saul. Uh, he, he didn't know Saul in any way. And yet David comes into the picture in a very obscure setting in Bethlehem as the great grandson of the couple that we talked about last week. We talked about Ruth and Boaz, who had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse. And during the reign of Saul, there came a time where Saul just sort of drifted more and more toward doing his own thing and being less interested in pleasing the Lord. And God just got fed up with that. And so he spoke through the leading prophet in the land, whose name was Samuel. He was the one who had anointed Saul as king. And he said, he corrected him for something that he had done wrong. And basically finally said, I have rejected you as king. And I have raised up for myself a man who is a man after my own heart. Well, God was talking about David. The irony of that is David was a teenager at the time. And he was a nobody living in Bethlehem. Well, God spoke to Samuel at that point in time and said, I want you to go and to anoint that man that I've been t talking about, who's a man after my own heart. I want you to anoint him as the next king. Well, you can imagine uh, that caused some angst for Samuel because Saul was still large and in charge. And he wasn't looking to step down as king anytime soon. And Samuel was thinking, this isn't going to be good for me. 
I'm the guy who anointed him as king. Word gets back to him that I've anointed somebody else. He's going to want my head. He's going to want that guy's head. God said, no, you just go and set apart this man. And so you can only imagine how Samuel was thinking, who is this going to be? And what's he going to look like? And where's he going to be from? God sends him to Bethlehem. Sends him to the house of Jesse, the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, and says it's one of his sons that's going to be the next king. And so Samuel says to Jesse, I want you to bring your sons in before me. One of them is going to be the next king. And so he brings in the oldest son. It's always going to be the oldest. That's always the man. And the oldest son, man, he looked the part. He he looked like Saul Jr. And so when he's paraded in, Samuel's like, oh, yeah, this is no, no doubt about it. He is the one. And the spirit of the Lord speaks to to Samuel and says, hold up. Man looks at the outward appearance, and that's what you're doing. But understand that I, God, look at the heart of a man. That's not the one that I've chosen. And so Samuel says, eh, not him. Bring in the next one. They bring in the second son. Same deal. Samuel's thinking, he looks like he must be the one. God says, nope, not him. One son after the other. They go through seven sons each time. Not him. And so that's it. It's like he's out of sons. And Samuel's going, I don't understand. God has said no to all of these. Jesse, are you sure these these are all of your sons? And it's really sort of a peculiar part in the exchange because Jesse's kind of like, well, I mean, there is Junior. You know, we we got one more. He's out in the field, but I figured he wasn't even worth calling in. But, uh, I mean, I do have one more son. And he says, look, we're not even going to sit down to eat until you get him in here before us. All right, go get David. I don't know why, but get him and bring him in. He brings David in, the youngest of the lot. And the Spirit of the Lord says, yes, he is the one, anoint him, he is going to be the next king. So Samuel does that, sets him apart as the next king. And you can only imagine, not only what an awkward moment that is, but how weird it is when Samuel leaves. (laughs) Surprise, you're going to be the next king. But Saul ain't going anywhere anytime soon. What are you going to do with that? Samuel leaves town and it's kind of like, well, I guess I'll go back to being a shepherd just like I have been. And David goes back out and just does. He has the lowest of the low jobs being a shepherd. The kids would do this job. The next time that we see David, and if you've got your Bibles and want to kind of follow along with where we are, uh, we're now jumping to 1 Samuel chapter 16. The next time David appears in chapter 16, the next thing we hear of him, it's actually Saul that's in the focal point for the moment. And it says that the spirit of the Lord has at this point just departed Saul. And as a result of that, an evil spirit has come in and is tormenting Saul. A great reminder of a very simple truth that impacts all of us. That when you get to a point of disobedience and rebellion in your life to the extent that you allow yourself to come out from under the covering and the protection of God, the enemy will always seek to come in and torment you and exploit that lack of covering. And that's what happens with Saul. An evil spirit comes in and just makes his life really unbearable. And so some of his aides who just see how he's just like almost out of his mind, he's so tormented by this. And somebody says, why don't we get a musician to come in and play? You know, music soothes the savage beast. So maybe that'll calm him down. And one of his aides says, I know, I've heard of a, of a young man who is a great warrior and also a great musician. And his name is David. It's a really striking thing that, that would be said of him because David is still probably in his late teens, 20 or 21 at the very oldest. And he hasn't served in the army. He's just been in the field as a shepherd and already he's known as a great warrior. We're going to find out in a moment why he was known as that. So they call David in to do nothing but play the harp. Now, he probably doesn't become friends with Saul at this point. If you just consider it's the king and he's just the music guy. So he comes in and he plays the harp and it does the... You know, he thinks it's the harp, Saul does, but it's probably more about the anointing that's on David that drives the enemy away. But the scripture says that when David would come and play for Saul, that the evil spirit couldn't bear that. And the evil spirit would depart Saul and he would get relief. So he would frequently call for David. And so, you know, the next thing for David's got to be kind of weird. All right, I'm a shepherd, I'm a nobody, but I've been anointed as the next king. And the next thing I know, I'm transported to the palace, not to be king, but to be the harp player. And so that's sort of the the last part of that scene. And in chapter 17, we fast forward and discover that David isn't apparently living at the palace. Bethlehem's only seven or eight miles from Jerusalem. And uh, 
it, it would have been, or, or from wherever he had actually set up right then that, that he was ruling at the time. But it, he's a very short distance from where Saul is. And so he's able to continue to go back and forth to where uh, he's tending the sheep for his father. And uh, when we get to chapter 17, David's been back tending the sheep, even though he's had a lot of contact with Saul. And we come to a point in history that's the best known in David's whole life. It's the story that everyone knows in chapter 17, where... Uh, three of David's oldest brothers have gone to serve in the army. And Israel, as is happening throughout this major period of history, they're fighting again with the Philistines. And in the middle of this conflict, they've come to sort of a standstill where the two, two armies are faced off on opposing hills with a valley in between. And there's just for about 40 days, they've just sort of been stuck at this point. And Jesse wants to know what's going on in the battle. And so he sends some food by David. He says, I want you to take this to your older brothers and to their commanders Bring them the food, and then you bring back to me a report of how things are going. David's excited to go because he just is the nobody who's always just out in the field with the dumb sheep. So he gets to go with the food and to see what's happening at the battle lines. And he gets there, and it's like, well, what a dud. No blood. Nobody being killed. You know, how boring. This is a rated G movie. I thought I was going to the war. And what he finds when he gets there is that the armies for 40 days have been in a standoff where the same thing has been repeated every single day for 40 days. There is a freak among the Philistines. His name's Goliath. He is truly a genetic anomaly. He, he, maybe he was a part of the Nephilim that we talked about a few weeks ago. He is definitely not like anybody we've seen in the world today. He's nine feet tall. He's got the body to go with the height. And he has been a warrior since he was a kid. And every day he steps out and taunts the armies of Israel. And he says, there's no reason for us to have to kill each other. Let's just settle this one-on-one. -on -one. I'll come and represent my army. You send any one representative to fight me. And if he kills me, my people will serve you. But if I kill your man, then you have to become our servants. Let's just settle it one-on-one. -on -one. And every time he would come out, the Israelites would shrink back and hide. Because there was nobody among the Israelites that was about to go fight this freak. Now, part of the irony in this is, surely the biggest of the Israelites, based on the description that we're given, is Saul the king. And he's not about to go out there. So David gets there. He brings the cheese and the grain and the bread for his brothers. And he's like, what's going on? And while he's just sort of checking things out, out marches Goliath for his daily taunt. And he would. I mean, he would just absolutely slam on the, the armies of Israel and their God. And, and so he comes out and he gives his usual speech every day to humiliate them. And when he does, the scripture says that the Israelites all ran back and hid. And David's watching this. And he's just appalled. And he's going, why doesn't anybody fight this joker? Are we going to just stand back and take this? And they're all looking at him like, are you crazy? Have you not seen him? And David says, well, if nobody else will do it, I'll fight the guy. And so, you know, his brothers are offended. They're like, you little moron. What are you doing coming out here saying you're going to fight him? You know, who's tending your little sheep back home? Why don't you get back and get back in the sheep pen? And, and he's like, what have I done to you? I said, I'll fight the, the man. And, and the other soldiers are like, great, we've got a volunteer. Take him to the king. So they bring little David in before the king. And he says to Saul, I'll, you know, I'll go and fight this guy who defies the armies of the living God. And, and Saul looks at him and says, dude, you can't fight him. There's no way you could stand up to him. How would you handle that? And David says, when I've been tending sheep all these years for my father, when a, a bear or a lion would come in and take one of the sheep and would try and run off with it, I would chase after him. And I would seize him and strike him and cause him to let go of the lamb. And then I would kill him. I have done this to the lion and I have done this to the bear. The hand of the Lord has given them both to me. And the Lord will give this same Philistine to me. The same God who delivered the lion and the bear to me will deliver this Philistine to me today. And Saul pretty much goes, well, that's good enough for me. I didn't want to go in the first place. <laughs> Give him my armor. And so they take off the armor of this huge man and they try and put it on David. And you can just picture David like armor down to the ground. And he's like, I can't even move around in this. I can't go into battle like this. So they take it off of him and he heads out to meet 
Goliath, who's still standing in the valley waiting. And all David has with him is his shepherd's bag and his, his sling. It's not a slingshot like we have today. It's the, an old ancient style sling. And so he picks up five stones and he puts them in his bag. And he goes out to meet the giant. Now I want to tell you, I know we all know the story, but if you haven't read it lately, go back and read 1 Samuel 17 this week. It is a moving story. As David is marching out to what has to look like his certain doom, Goliath sees, finally, after 40 days of waiting, he's going to have an opportunity to, to hurt somebody. But he realizes as David's getting closer, this is no warrior, this is no man, this is just... Uh, an adolescent, a barely grown man, if that. And he gets ticked from the time he sees David and he begins to shout, What am I? A dog that you send out this kid with sticks to fight against me? And it says, in that moment, Goliath hated David because it's like an insult. You're going to send this kid to fight me? And he says, Today I will feed your carcass to the birds and the wild beasts when I'm done with you. You'd think in that moment David would like stop and have a little prayer time or, you know, rethink this thing. Oh, David's just ticked at this point. And David says, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come at you in the name of the God of the armies of Israel, the Lord Almighty. And today, He will deliver you into my hands. And let's be clear, I'll be the one who will be feeding your body and the bodies of your army to the wild animals and the beasts. That's what's about to happen. And it says at that point, David began to run toward the giant. Bring it on. Woo! I mean, that is a man right there. He is running to the battle and he is putting a stone in his sling as he's running. And he is warming that thing up. And, you know, I'm sure that, that Goliath is just thinking... He is an idiot. I'm just going to go pop his head off of his shoulders. And as David gets in range, he lets go with that stone and whack right in the fort. And it smacks him so hard it knocks him out cold. Bam! Nine feet of man hits the ground. He has an armor bearer with him. I've always wondered what the armor bearer did in that moment. I bet he just kind of went, oh no, <laughs> and ran away. David runs up to the body, immediately pulls out the huge sword that Goliath carried, raised it up. He didn't stop to think about it. He whacked his head off immediately. And in that moment, you know, you can just imagine there was a collective gasp from the Philistine hillside. <gasps> and they all begin to turn and run in a panic. And the Israelites are like, yeah! And they charge, and at that point, it's a slaughter. The Philistine army is soundly defeated, and David goes and carries away the head and armor of Goliath. And as, as they finish that day and they march away from that, as you can imagine, word spreads like wildfire throughout the land. That the, the giant who has been just the, the central figure for the enemy army has been defeated by one man, a young man named David. And everybody's just cheering for David. To the point that as the army now begins to march back on the day when this is all concluded, the women who have now, as they've heard in these villages, the women come out and they begin to cheer and to sing. And what they sing is, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Whew. That's trouble. That's trouble a-coming. Because, you see, Saul has already been told by Samuel in the first place, God has rejected you as king, and he has chosen for himself a man after his own heart. So, Saul already knows that he's on shaky ground, and there's a clock counting down on his reign. And now, all of a sudden, the people are cheering for somebody else bigger than they're cheering for him. And the writer of Samuel says that from that point forward, Saul was jealous of David, and he kept a very careful eye on him. Well, the very next day, as David is there in the presence of Saul, and Saul is fretting about this, an evil spirit comes and powerfully overtakes Saul. And in that moment, he just has an, an overwhelming urge to kill David. In fact, he grabs up his spear and he hurls it at David. And David, just at the last second, jumps aside and avoids being killed. He tries to kill him twice. And that begins a lengthy period in David's lifetime 
that's it's very difficult to envision what it was like. Because here on the day after David wins this great victory, he has this tremendous challenge and setback. By the way, there's a life lesson in that. And some of you can identify very much with this. The, the Goliath moment has to have been like the biggest mountaintop in David's entire life up to there. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that, that's as good as it's gotten. He has seen the hand of God act. The impossible has happened. And on the very next day, when you would just think, we've gone from, woohoo, David is the man, to the king is trying to kill David. How many of you have been there in your own way? That you hit a spiritual high point, a tremendous high in your life, and immediately following that, something dreadful and unthinkable happens. It feels like the fury of hell has been unleashed on your life. Right after God just did something really significant. The enemy was always trying to steal that away. He will always try and undercut what God is doing when he's done something significant in your life. It's very predictable. Well, that begins this long season that's really bizarre because the hand of the Lord is on David. And he has a tremendous anointing in all that he does. And that's, that's obvious. Saul can't stand the sight of him. But he can't really divorce himself from David being a part of what he's doing. He needs David and David's popularity. And so he just says, you take a thousand men and go away. You just go fight the battles that need to be fought. Just stay out of my sight. And so he does. And it's like David now leads the Green Berets or something. Because everywhere that David goes and goes into battle, those thousand men and David, though, they're, they're not an army. I mean, they're just a little unit. They just win victories everywhere they go. So David's popularity is just skyrocketing. Saul is, is watching all this from a distance and his distrust for and hatred for David just continues to grow. And it's like every time he gets around David, there's another encounter where Saul tries to kill David again. I mean, can you imagine the king that you serve is trying to kill you every time you, you go out and you're in danger in the field and then you come back and you get a break, but you're in danger at home because the king's going to try and kill you. And so what follows then, we go from a period where David has been leading a, a little portion of the army and having to avoid being killed by the king every time something crazy happens to where finally David just has to, to give up and just truly flee because Saul finally says, this guy has to die. Early on, it had just been in, in a moment uh, of emotion that he would try and kill David. And now it's like, no, this has become the one overwhelming thought in Saul's mind. I have to kill David. And so now he raises up the army and says, here's our mission to just destroy David. He is public enemy number one. And so the, the army marches out and they pursue David all over the place. A period of years follow where David is the most wanted man in all of Israel. And the, the whole army is mobilized to go out and, and pursue him. And so David, he winds up hiding in the desert and in caves and on multiple occasions has to leave the country. He has to go to their enemies to try and hide among them. There's one season where he, he goes to hide in a foreign city, in a Philistine city, but he realizes the king will know who I am. And so he pretends to be insane and he's drooling on himself just like, you know, and he's just acts like he's just a total lunatic. And the king's like, wow, this guy's not even worth killing he is fruit loops and so he just leaves him alone i mean a long period where this has gone on but there are a couple of different encounters where saul catches up to david and where it looks like david could lose his life but then god turns the table and david has an opportunity to kill saul two different times and both times david spares his life this is the the running account of of just all of the ups and downs of David's the decade of David's life that was his 20s. When David is 30 years old, he finally gets word that in another battle where the Israelites have gone out against the Philistines, that things have not gone in Israel's favor this time. Saul has been killed, and so has his son Jonathan. And David had become best friends, like brothers, with Jonathan, the son of Saul, and both of them die on the same day. The, uh, the man who has witnessed the death of Saul. Saul actually is mortally wounded and then he, he kills, he finishes himself off so that he doesn't get tortured by the enemy. And the person who saw that runs to David and says, hey, I've got great news. Saul is dead. And he, he twists the story and, and says, you know, so I'm the one who stepped in and finished him off, which wasn't true, but he wanted to take credit thinking I'll get a great reward from the king. And David is just so grieved over what's happened. And so offended 
it's it's really hard for us to absorb. We'll, We'll go back and revisit this in a moment, but... David's so offended that this guy would take the life of the king, even though it's the king who has pursued David and tried to kill him, that he says, kill this man. How dare he have touched God's anointed? And he has the guy put to death right there on the spot. Well, immediately thereafter, there's a vacuum, a bit of a vacuum. And Judah, David is from the tribe of Judah. Judah uh, proclaims David as the king of Judah. Judah is actually a, a huge tribe. It's almost a third of Israel. In terms of, of land mass and of people, they declare David to be their king. But one of the sons of Saul, as you would imagine, and throughout history, normally it's the royal line that assumes the throne. So the son of the king is going to take over the throne. Well, Saul's son Ishbosheth said, Well, I'm going to be the next king. Well, the other tribes, 10 or 11 tribes, supported that and they followed Ishbosheth. And so David at the age of 30 becomes the king of a, for, a fraction of the land, less than half the land, less than half the people. And for the first seven and a half years of his 40-year reign, David is king over only a part of the land and a part of the people. And David arrives as king just in time to have to face a civil war. Like it's not bad enough that we're having to deal with the Philistines who are constantly wanting to invade. But now more than half of the country is against me and my leadership. And it just has to feel like, wow, was this really God's plan? Back when I was, whatever, 16, 18 years old, and he said, you're the one. I'm so pleased with you. I want you to be king that, you know, you're going to get to spend the next decade of your life on the run and hiding and being chased and sought after by the king. And then when you become king, you're only going to be Become king of part of the land. And the other part of the land, they're all going to be trying to kill you. Welcome to... God's plan for your life. It's a pretty poignant reminder of what it's like to live in the will of God, isn't it? You ever notice what a skewed vision and idea we have of what it is to be in the will of God? That we've sort of created this false sense of, if everything is easy in your life, great, you must be in God's will. And if there's opposition and difficulty, ooh, you must have done something. You must have gotten out of the will of God. That sounds more like the friends of Job than anything that's truth. David was in the middle of God's will for his life, and he's having to spend a decade running for his life. He spends seven and a half years fighting a civil war that he never wanted in the first place, having to kill his fellow countrymen until finally, after seven and a half years of this chaos, God begins to orchestrate circumstances so that Abner, the general over the, the armies of, of the rest of Israel and Ishbosheth, he realizes what folly this has been, and he comes to David, and just to cut to the chase, though Abner gets killed and Ishbosheth gets murdered, the, the whole country comes back together under David's leadership. Once again, just as an interesting aside, um, two men sneak in and kill, it. They, they murder Ishbosheth in his sleep. They stab him to death, and then they run to David and say, Guess what? We killed your enemy. Ishbosheth is dead, so now you can reign. And David immediately goes, my paraphrase, but are you kidding me? Did you not hear what I did to the guy who came in and announced that Saul was dead and that he had killed him? And now you've come to brag that you've killed Saul's son, the next king reigning over Israel? And so he has their heads, hands and feet cut off and puts them on poles and says, you know, this is what happens to those who touch God's anointed. It doesn't matter that we've been fighting a war. You don't mess with God's anointed. This is a big deal in David's life. We'll return to that. So now David is king over all of Israel, and he reigns for about 37 years before he dies. A lot of things happen in that time. Um, David claims the holy city as his, and he sets up his throne there. Uh, One of the most significant things that David did was he actually brought the Ark of the Covenant, which powerfully represented God's presence with his people. He brought that into the holy city. Um, He he led the people in just numerous victories, and and the territory of Israel was expanded. And within their boundaries, many of the cities that still had been under pagan control are defeated. And Israel is stronger than it's ever been. And David, to this day, 3,000 years later, because David lived and reigned about 1,000 years before the time of Christ. In 3,000 years, there's never been a, a leader to rival the reign of David. He just was such an extraordinary figure. I I, I said in the the title to the outline this week that he was 
a poet, a musician, a warrior, and a king. And he truly was all of the above. Such an extraordinary figure. Now, I don't have time by any means to unpack everything that happened during his reign. But I do want to rewind now and take a few minutes and just talk about seven things in David's life and story that are really significant that I don't want us to run past. If you want to pull your outlines out, we're going to just move through this fairly quickly. But it begins with the fact that David from the outset, his age, his size, his birth order, who his family was, all of that made him such an unlikely king. We've said the title of the series is Unexpected Heroes. David may top the list of unexpected heroes. He was a nobody. He wasn't a big man. He didn't come from a royal family. Nothing about where he came from or his role in life would suggest that he would do anything significant. And in fact, the the passage that uh, describes when David is brought in before Samuel is so peculiar, people have really wrestled with how it unfolded that way. I told you how the seven were brought before Samuel, but David was an afterthought. Jesse's like, why bother to bring him in? And Samuel has to press the point, don't you have any more sons? Well, I mean, I've got one more. Well, we're not going to eat until you bring him in. I've always wondered, why was David treated that way? I mean, he was below second-class citizen, it would seem, from this exchange. It's just not worth even bringing him in from the field. It has been suggested. We have no idea whether this is true or not. I very seldom will share things like this because we like to talk about truth in here. But sometimes you just run into things that are like, that's really odd. What would explain that? It has been suggested by some theologians that David, because of his treatment in this encounter, may have been the brother by another mother kind of son. That I mean, you think back to the Jephthah story. You remember how there were all of the brothers of Jephthah that were beloved, and then there was Jephthah. He was the son by the prostitute, and he got treated as truly second-class son. David appears to be getting similar treatment here, and it has been suggested by some. He, he might have been that kind of, you know, well, hedge you by another woman. We don't know. It doesn't matter. But the bottom line is... Even among his own family, it's like, hey, if anybody in this family is going to amount to something, it's least likely to be him. The whole point here is this. God loves to take those who look like they would be the last choice for a particular role and do significant things because he gets maximum glory in those circumstances. When God takes a nobody and accomplishes something God sized through them, the rest of the world has to go, wow. Must have been God because it sure wasn't them. God loves to do that because God loves to bring himself the glory that he's due. David was a great example of how God loves to do that. And you and I ought to be encouraged by that. That's why there's hope for us that God will do something significant through us. It's not, you know, one day if I spiritually just grow up enough and get strong enough and know enough Bible and go to church. No, forget that. You're not going to earn the favor of God. God loves to use the weak things of this world to confound the strong and to bring glory to himself. David was an example of that. The second thing I would point out is that David learned to be courageous and just downright fearless while he was tending sheep. You know, I pointed out that one of the advisors of Saul said when he was being tormented by the spirits, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man. And a warrior. Well, how is he known as a brave man and a warrior? Because the stories have gotten out. You, you may be a nobody and you may tend sheep for a living and that may be the lowest of the low. But you kill lions and bears with your bare hands, the story will spread. Don't you know it? I would have retold that story. Even though he's never been into battle with the army, he's been into battle. He's just been in battle with the wild animals. And that story has spread to the point that even some of Saul's closest advisors know about it. And the thing that's so profound about that to me is it's such a great example of how you may be in a feel like you're pigeonholed at a place in life where you just feel like I'm not doing anything significant that's impacting the world or that matters to God. Here I am stuck with just such a limited role and such small responsibilities how could my life and my role ever matter? And David's life is a picture of the fact that if you are faithful in the little things, 
you'll be faithful in the big things. And the one that God finds faithful in the little things, he'll give responsibility for bigger things. When David had to face a giant that nobody in the whole army would be willing to go out and face, even though the king, by the way, had offered tremendous reward to, still nobody would face him. Given that situation, David was ready because he had just been faithful to take care of the sheep. That was it. The smallest responsibility. Something that oftentimes children were assigned to do. But he did it well. And he didn't shrink back from anything that came his way. And that is a great word for every one of us. I don't know what role God has given you right now, but it matters. And it may feel like, well, it only affects a tiny, tiny little group of people. You may have a role right now that you feel like doesn't touch anybody but your immediate family. Be faithful in that. And don't you shrink back from any responsibility that you have in that. And by the way, it doesn't matter who you are or what your role is in life. Everybody here has an opportunity to be a brave warrior. Because everybody here is involved in the greatest conflict that the universe has ever known. And every one of us has a calling to stand in the gap and to bring the victory of the cross to bear in our life and in the lives of those who come under our umbrella of authority. And that may just be one or two other people, but you do that faithfully and God will extend those boundary lines. But you've got to be faithful in that. One of the places that we need to learn to be fearless is when we pray and stand in the gap and in the authority of Jesus' name and in the victory of the cross, we push the enemy back, not in our strength, but through the victory of Christ. And when God sees us being faithful in that, being a good shepherd over the little flock that we have, God will extend those boundary lines. He will extend our influence. And he did that in David's life. But he had to learn to be courageous, taking care of the sheep that he started with. A third thing about David's life that stood out is that he had great respect for authority and for God's anointed. And nobody's going to shout or raise a hand or go glory over that. And yet it is a significant part of David's life. I mean freakishly significant. I've already shared a couple of the examples with you. When people killed the folks who appeared to be his enemies, Saul and then his son Ishbosheth, and you would think David's going to go, Woohoo, let me give you a big reward. No, he said, You got to die today because you have harmed God's anointed. David understood the basic principle of there is no one in authority except that authority which God himself has established. Do not touch God's anointed. When David is constantly being pursued by Saul, Saul is trying to take his life. And as much as David would like to end that, David's like, I can't mess with him because he is God's anointed. If God wants him gone, God's going to have to deal with him. Two different times, God orchestrated circumstances that David could have taken Saul's life. I mean, one of them is just almost comical because... Saul has pursued David out into the desert, and it gets to the point, David and his little band of men, they, there's no place to hide, so they just run into a big cave. And they've all gotten back in the darkness of the cave because they see the army and Saul coming there, and it's like, oh no, this may be the final showdown. And the army, I mean, you can just picture these few guys at the, at the head of, of David's little army peeking out, and it's like, oh no, they're coming our way, they're coming right here, this is going to be it. I mean, we're in the worst position that we can be in. How do you defend a cave? The army stops right there. It's like, what, what are they doing? And they see Saul coming out separate from the army. What's he doing? He's coming up here alone. Well, the reality is, he's going to use the bathroom. And he doesn't want to disrobe in front of his men. And it's like, stay here, guys. I'm going to go use the cave over there. Saul goes into the cave, the very cave where David and his men are hiding. An impossible turn of events. A huge army about to overwhelm a small army. And God says, I know how to remedy that. I'll just stir his insides. He's got to go to the bathroom. And Saul marches into the very cave where David and his men are hiding. I mean, just right up to where they're in the dark. Saul disrobes, and it's going to take him a few minutes to take care of business. Long enough for David to belly crawl right next to where Saul is to get his robe and to actually cut off a piece of the hem of his robe. And he takes that, and he slinks back into the darkness. Saul finishes his business, goes back out to his army, and David marches out of the cave and calls out to him. He, from a distance, he calls and gets his attention, 
And just to show his respect for authority, David bows before him and calls him my Lord. He refers to him as his father. All of these terms of respect and submission. And, and along the way, he says, you know, you're missing something? And he holds up the piece of his garment. Saul hasn't realized that he hit. And he looks down and it's like, holy smoke. And he's just, he's saying to him, why do you continue to pursue me? Why do you continue to believe the lies that I would do harm to you? I could have killed you. I didn't. I don't want to do you any harm. I'll look at you like my father. I would never hurt you. And, you know, Saul for the moment is so repentant and he calls off the manhunt. We're going to be friends now. But it never lasts. Once again, he calls out the army and goes after David. God orchestrates another set of circumstances like that where David and Abishai, his aide, they go in and they, they slip into Saul's camp while everyone's asleep. And they get right on top of Saul. And Abishai is like, sir, just give me the word. I will drive a spear through him and we'll be done with this. And David, in response to that, says to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? In the earlier exchange, David's words, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift up my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. As I said, nobody will get excited about this principle, but don't you dare miss it. Everything, everything in the kingdom of God is organized around lines of authority. And you will never be able to do anything significant for the kingdom of God if you don't begin to understand and operate within this principle that you only are able to accomplish great things when you get in line with God's authority and you can't get in line with God's authority until you submit to the authorities that God puts in place in your life. Now, the reason that we don't like this principle is because we want for the, the corollary to that to be, but you don't really have to submit if they aren't good people. You don't have to submit if they're not being nice to you. You don't have to submit if they're doing things that hurt your feelings or don't advance your career or somehow pigeonhole you where you are. Then you don't have to be nice. You can trash them behind their backs. You can work against them because that doesn't apply. We'd like for that to be true, wouldn't we? I mean, who wants to really have to submit to an authority that at times isn't being nice to you at all? And let's get more specific. When we talk about authorities, think about the authorities that God puts in your life. It starts from the day that you're born and He gives you a mama and a daddy. And those are the primary authorities in our lives. And we go through a season where their authority just drives us insane, right? It's called teenagehood. And then God wonderfully turns the tables and gives us teenagers and says, ain't that fun? You know, on top of that, He puts all kinds of other authorities in place. He, he gives us bosses. He gives us teachers. He gives us pastors and church leaders. He gives us governmental leaders. He just gives us supervisors over us at work. And in real life, some of those are good people, good managers, good people skills, and some of them absolutely stink at all of the above, don't they? Some of you were blessed with great parents who were wonderful authorities, and some of you had abusive, destructive, alcoholic, drug addict, abusive, messed up parents. And in all of that, it's easy to get confused about where is God and why would he allow this? I don't have the answers to all of that, but I do know this. David's life is an example of a biblical principle that we see from start to finish. That in the kingdom of God, greatness starts with learning to submit to authority. Submitting to God's authority and submitting to all of those that God puts in authority over us. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're getting abused that you're supposed to stay where you are and continue to be abused by your husband or by your parents. That When other principles of life are being violated, there are times when you have to step out. David's submission to authority didn't mean that he just sat around and said, Okay, Saul, take my head off. Drive me through with a spear. He submitted to authority even while he was running for his life. Sometimes submitting to authority is a complex thing when authority is a is a wicked entity. But even in that situation, David was so careful because he did not want to step out of line of, of God's chain of authority. This is a, a huge principle for us to learn, but it's a big one for us to teach our kids. I mean, you guys realize what an epidemic problem we have, don't you, about how the next generation has not been taught really well about submission to authority. It's why the public school system is as chaotic as it is. Because we only support the teachers to the extent that they never say anything corrective to our kids. You know what I'm talking about. It's the nightmare of being a public school teacher today. 
You know, we... Y'all remember the day when those of us who've got a few decades on us, you know, when the authority of the teachers and the principals and those folks out there was so supported. I remember what the rule was at my house. It was plain and simple. I don't care what you get in trouble for. You get a spanking at school. You're going to get one when you get home. That's the deal. Because we support and endorse their authority and you will learn to submit to their authority. I wasn't crazy about that deal, by the way. But it was a good plan. Because the the primary deal was this. You, Mark Price, better learn to submit to people in authority. And a part of that is just learning to respect your elders and to submit to their authority. Because you're a kid and they're a grown-up and you submit to their authority. Am I the... In a, in a room with some people who see that and agree with that. I mean, do, you, do y'all realize that? That's a big deal for us to, to learn this principle. David modeled that for us. Fourth thing. David had to learn to be a survivor before he could be king. Saul constantly trying to kill him, calling the army out to take his life. I mean, it, it's one of the examples in 1 Samuel 19 while David's playing the harp. Once again, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove his spear into the wall. And that night, David once again made good his escape. And and the reason that I take a moment to point that out in his life is David spent not just a few days or a few months. David spent years just surviving. And the reason I think that matters for us is because I think there are a lot of us watching and listening online, a lot of us in the room today, who are in that phase that you just feel like, forget doing anything great for God right now. Forget about even imagining trying to do something that's for the kingdom. I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to figure out how to keep my kids from, you know, destroying their lives. I'm just trying to figure out how to survive financially. I'm trying to figure out how to survive a divorce or how to have a marriage survive. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, we can make a long list of the things of life that just become so overwhelming. It's like, I can't even see anything outside of, of this tiny little circle that is my life and my family. And we're just trying to survive. I don't know where God is in any of that. Well, He's probably right in the middle of all of it. And the fact that you're in survival mode doesn't mean that God's quit loving you. Or that God's plan isn't being worked out in your life. It doesn't feel that way when you're in survival mode, does it? It just feels like hell has been unleashed on your life. And the devil's winning, doesn't it? It feels that way. But David's life is a great reminder that when it feels like hell will win, it will not. Because Jesus reigns and Jesus has won the victory. We live in the in-between where the enemy is still being pushed back. David's life and, and the whole story of Israel here becomes a picture for us of reality for us. We know the outcome because we've read the story, but they were having to live out the in-between. And part of the in-between is David had to fight some battles and David had to endure some days where it's like, this isn't cozy, this isn't fun. I'm just glad I made it through another day. I don't see how I can go much longer like this. And God's going, I know you feel that way, but I am going to work this thing out. Hang in there. Right now, your main job is to trust me and survive. And for some of you, that is the word for the day, and you don't have to listen to anything else that I say. Because if you're in that moment, that's really pretty much all you need to live by. God is saying to you, don't worry about everything else that's coming in the next decade or two or beyond. For today, you just trust me and survive. And when you get up tomorrow, you just trust me and survive another day. We're going to get through this. You ever been in survival mode? You ever felt like hell had been totally unleashed in your life and your family? It doesn't mean God has abandoned you. What it may mean is that God is preparing you for the next thing that's going to be really significant. It's what was happening with David. David had to be a survivor before he could be a king. The next two things in David's life that I'll point out are the really negative ones. The fifth point is that David had, in the middle of all this, a massive weakness for women. Now, I'll tell you, that the reason that I love David so much is in large part because God was so crazy about David. I mean, that is just the one thing that, that stands out in David's story and the Psalms. Just God clearly was just crazy about David. And I know we think, you know, well, parents are supposed to love all their kids the same. But, but they don't, do they? 
I mean, we love all of our kids. We're crazy about all of our kids, but we love all of our kids differently. And I'm just telling you, God and David had just something special going on. And the interesting thing in that is David was far from the picture of perfection. And a part of what's wrong in David's life is, wow, did he have a weakness for women. You know, if David had lived in the 21st century, he would have probably been the internet porn addiction king. Because he loved the women. He did. And I say that as a huge fan of David. But David had an issue with women. Just one of the examples is given to us in 2 Kings when David has been reigning for some time as king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it begins by saying, In spring, at the time of year when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the army. And he stayed behind in Jerusalem. Ooh, it's a, it's a shaky start to the story. David isn't where he belongs. David should be with the king. He is the most anointed military leader that the world has probably ever seen up to that point in time. And he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And he is about to make the worst mistake of his entire life. And it all started with David disengaging from doing what he knew he should be doing. You know, even in that, there's a great simple reminder the, the things that we do that get us in the most trouble usually don't start with a big, terrible decision. They usually start with us disengaging from just doing something simple, but that really matters. I mean, just as a for instance, how many times in life do you get to that place where you don't like want to chase after something really bad, but maybe without even really meaning to, you sort of disengage from being involved in church. You disengage from being connected to a small group or from really be con being connected vitally to a fellowship. You disengage from spending time with God in prayer and in the Word. You disengage from serving. It's, I'm just so busy at work and all this stuff. I just don't have time to serve, lead, teach, whatever. You just disengage from those things and you just sort of shift into neutral. I'm not doing anything bad. I just, just don't have as much time for all that. I'm not into all that right now. And you find yourself six months, a year later, 18 months later. You've gotten in a relationship or you've made a decision or you've moved in a direction that is so destructive that you never would have dreamed of when you made those first decisions to just sort of just pull back and disengage. When David disengaged, he got bored. And in the middle of the night, he was bored and restless. Boredom has gotten more men in trouble in the history of the world than internet pornography or every strip joint in America. Boredom has gotten more men in trouble. David got bored, and he began to roam around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, Isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, sir, this is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. A great reminder, guys, that every time any of us are tempted to look lustfully at a woman and want to undress her or dishonor her in any way to remember her, this is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's sister. Might even be somebody's wife and mother. But David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. She wasn't just somebody. She was the wife of one of David's inner circle men. David had an inner circle of 30 of the bravest warriors. That they were true, truly, they were like SEAL Team 6 for him. They were the baddest of the bad, the closest, most trusted circle. Uriah was one of the 30. This was Uriah's wife. And David not only brought her in and committed adultery with her and conceived a child with her, but he had Uriah murdered so he could have her for his own. And as a result of that, the child conceived in that sin wound up dying in infancy. And we get just that as one snapshot of the life that David just couldn't resist women. We know for sure from the scriptures that David had at least eight wives and ten concubines. At least 18 women that he claimed. We don't know how many others that didn't get written about. That's a lot of women. Now, I don't share all that to try and trash David. It's just that the scriptures are faithful to show us the good and the bad. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who served God. 
so courageously, but David was a man with very real issues, and a weakness for women was a very significant part of that, and tremendous suffering flowed from that. Now, there are kind of two messages in that for us, because for some, there's a sense of, man, I have failed in so many ways relationally. Maybe you've been with a lot of partners, or maybe failed marriages, failed relationships. Any of that has left you with the baggage of just feeling, oh, I know God could never use me because I've had legalistic people tell me that God never uses anybody who who morally fails or sexually fails. Well, I would invite those people to go back and read about David because that doesn't apply for him, does it? David slept with a lot of women. And lest we're tempted to go, well, it was Old Testament. You could get away with that. God never said in the Old Testament it was okay to take multiple women. People just did it. He used his power to just do that. And the result of that was so much pain and chaos. Which brings us to the sixth point. The natural thing that flowed from that is that David had many weaknesses and failures as a parent. The chaos spilled over to his family. Now, as I said, there are really two points in the whole thing of of David having all these moral failures with women. On the one hand, it's a reminder that if you've screwed up a lot... If you feel like you're a failure there, just be reminded that didn't keep God from using David in a tremendous way. Greatest leader that Israel's ever known. But on the other hand, we're not supposed to take that as a blank check. It just goes, so see, it really doesn't matter how many people you sleep with or you know, who they are or what you do with them. It's really not that big of a deal to God. Actually, it is a pretty big deal. David suffered some terrible consequences for decades as a result of that chaotic part of his life. And it was the chaos in his family. I'll just remind you of a couple of things. For one, the son, who was the wisest of all of his many sons, who would succeed David on the throne, he would reign for another 40 years after David, was named Solomon. I would just remind us as parents that our kids will magnify. They will usually magnify what they see in us. If they see us chasing after God, oftentimes they'll chase after God harder than we did. And where they see us compromise, they will oftentimes compromise on levels that we never dreamed of. David had at least 18 wives and concubines. Solomon saw his dad's weakness there, and he magnified it. Solomon had 1,000 wives and concubines. Can you imagine the chaos that went with that? I mean, the married men in the room are thinking, I struggled trying to make one woman happy. Yep. I see a finger or two around the room going, one, you know, one's been tricky. A thousand? The chaos passed on. But he didn't have to wait to see how that was lived out in their lives, you know, when they they were grown and married. To just watch what happened with his immediate family. David had a lot of sons and daughters. By one wife, he had a son and daughter named Absalom and Tamar. By another wife, he had a son named Amnon. And just to give you the real short version of that story, Amnon had the hots for his half-sister Tamar. I mean, he really had the hots for her. And one of his friends said, well, you know, you're a prince. You, you deserve to have her. So just pretend like you're sick and get her in there with you, and then you can have your way. And so he's like, okay, I'll do that. So he played sick, had him call for his half-sister, and she comes in, and he says, will you make me some, some bread, make me a meal? Will you come and feed it to me? I can't feed myself. And when she got right over there, she was just trying to, to be faithful to what he needed. When she got right there to him, he grabbed her and he raped her. And word of that gets back to her brother, Absalom. She's just, just totally disgraced by this and how the guy rapes her and then throws her out. Absalom is furious. Of course, everybody thinks their father, David, is going to do something to set this right. There's going to be justice. Something's going to be done to rectify this. The king does nothing. For two years, nothing is done. Absalom is seething with anger all this time. I'm going to get my payback. After two years have passed and it seems that everything's died down, Absalom sees the opportunity. He calls together all the sons of of the king. He has a a feast for them, but he's instructed his servants. At a particular time, when I give you the signal, I want you to descend on my half-brother, and I want you to kill him. And so he did. In the middle of the meal, Amnon is murdered, and it says all the other sons of David mounted their mules and fled. They all got on their royal donkeys and got out of town. And word gets back to the king. I think this one verse summarizes the chaos. Because word gets back to the king that Absalom has killed all the sons of David. And somebody comes to correct that and said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. In one verse, there's a picture of the chaos. Well, let's see. One of your kids 
raped another of your kids, and then another sibling got mad about that and murdered the rapist. That's not the end of the chaos. Absalom flees because of the murder that's been committed, and he lives two or three years separated from the king and from the palace. And finally, he's fed up with that, and he's like, I didn't do anything wrong. I did what somebody should have done. I at least sought justice. And so he, he's able to, through finagling, he's allowed to come back into the holy city. And he lives there for two years. And for two years, David won't speak to him, won't see him, won't go to see him, won't have him come in the palace for two years. I mean, now years have stretched out. Six or seven years estranged from one another. David never does anything to speak to the pain, to speak to the chaos and make it right. And so Absalom's like, well, I'm sick of this. I'm just going to take over. And so Absalom begins to win the favor of the people and of the leaders. And he leads in a coup. And only at the last minute does David realize that. And with his inner circle, flee the palace and flee the city. And now they're on the run from his own son who suddenly has taken over the country. And another civil war ensues where once again he's having to fight and kill his fellow countrymen and finally have his own son killed, which David grieves deeply. Okay, maybe you feel like a failure as a parent. Maybe you feel like you've been a failure in relationships. But let me just say, unless you have had more than eight spouses and unless you have slept with more than ten of your employees... And unless you have had one of your kids rape another and then another of your kids murder the rapist and then one of them rebel against you to the point that you had to kill them. I know you thought about killing them when they were teenagers, but I mean kill them. Unless you have done all of that, you've never sunk as far as David did. This was the David that God was crazy about. Can you just begin to appreciate the depth of God's grace? Because when you look at the whole of David's life, it's like, I so admire what a warrior he was. And I so cringe to know how many women he slept with and how many people he killed and what a lousy job he did of leading his family. I'm a huge fan of David, but can we just agree he was a rotten father? I mean, one of your kids has just raped another and you won't even speak to the situation. Because you see, that's what happens in every dysfunctional family. Rule number one is don't talk about it. Never talk about the most painful, chaotic things that have happened in your home. And David was that kind of dad. He, he was a failure as a father. Had tremendous weaknesses and failures as a man, as a husband. And yet, in spite of that, God continued to bring him along. God continued to work in his life. And he wound up, in spite of those failures, being a very strong leader who finished well and wound up being the greatest king that the land would ever know. And that's really the most important deal, that David finished well. And that's really what God expects of us. There's a lot of junk in most of our past. And God isn't going, I just hate that. It's a shame your life's not going to work out because you screwed up. No, the grace of God says, I know about all of that. That's why I sent Jesus to set that right. My plan is for you to finish well and me to get much glory in that. When David comes to the end of his life, Samuel, 2 Samuel records the final words of David. In the seven verses that give his last words, the fifth verse says this. David says, Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part? And will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. David got right with the Lord and spent the last many years of his life serving God and leading well in spite of his failures. In fact, the final verse recorded about David's life in 2 Samuel, I mean, dozens of chapters summing up his life, and you get to the end of his reign, the last verse of the second book says this, when God's anger burned against Israel and he, he killed 70,000 of them because of disobedience, it says, but David intervened. He built an altar to the Lord, and there sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. And that's the final word. David stood in the gap for, for his sheep again. And he, he saved the sheep by intervening. He, sh he saved the people. It's David finishing well, leading well. When, when Paul is preaching and he's speaking of David in Acts 13, he said this to some of his life. When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors. That's a great final word, isn't it? David finished 
what God had assigned for him and his generation. And then he took him home. He had fulfilled, he had served God's purpose for his life. And then he took him home. That needs to be the bottom line for all of us, doesn't it? God just got to do what he wanted to do, and then he took home a faithful servant. A faithful servant who had been valiant, brave, and at times weak, and at times a failure. But God did what he wanted to do, and then he took him home. That's his plan for every one of us. It looks different for each of us. Every one of us has got issues to overcome, but the grace of God is enough. Can you say today what David said at the end of his life? Is not my house right with God? So we go to the Lord together in prayer. I want you to consider that question. Would you bow with me? Today is your house. Today is your heart right with the Lord. If it is, would you just give thanks to the Lord that the only way it's right is because of Jesus and His shed blood on the cross. And if today you feel like, boy, there's some stuff that's not right, would you just make it right? You don't have to go run home and start working on something to begin to make it right. It begins by just turning to God and saying, Lord, would you forgive me for the ways that I've failed you, run from you, ignored you? Would you forgive me? And today, would you just give me a fresh start? I want to finish well. And would you help me to do that? Would you give me the strength to do that today? If you've been in survival mode and you just felt like God's been far from you, would you just ask God in the middle of all of the chaos to help you to feel His nearness and His love in your life? And if maybe for the very first time you're at the point of needing to step into a relationship with God, that this has all been a, sort of a distant thought for you, but today... You need to enter into that. Would you do that by faith by simply saying, Jesus, I need you in my life. Thanks for dying for me. Thanks for seeking after me. Would you come in and forgive my sins? Would you change my heart and take control of my life? Father, I thank you that you care, that you're involved, and that you answer these prayers. And we thank you that today... As we reach out in faith that you extend your grace and your love to us. We receive that with thanksgiving. We say yes, thank you. And we pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.